politics, the bush and the future of our regions. You're listening to Weatherboard and Iron with Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan. Well, welcome back to another episode of Weatherboard and Iron, a podcast series looking at all things in country Australia and the nation generally. Uh, we've got a great guest on our program today, uh, Trent uh, Thorne, uh, a senior counsellor at Culloch Robertson Law Firm. How are you, Trent? I'm uh, going very well, thanks, Matt. Well, we've got Trent on to, today because there's been big news this week, big news uh, uh, for the agricultural sector in Australia, but for, for all rural industries, and that's the, uh, the federal court decision, uh, finally, federal court decision uh, relating to a class action taken uh, against the live export ban put in place in 2011. And Trent's been pretty much involved in this case from day one. Trent, maybe just tell us tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, uh, how you sort of got into this position, and, and then we'll talk a bit about the case. Okay, yeah, look, well, Matt, I'm a lawyer based here in Brisbane. The majority or pretty much all I do uh, relates to agribusiness law. Um, uh, most of that is in the, in the cattle, um, cotton and sugar sort of industries, but I would say mostly cattle. Um, I'm the co-head of our agribusiness group there, uh, and McCullough Robertson has had a long history of dealing with um, clients in um, the agribusiness sector. So um, it, it, it's, it's somewhere I've worked 15 years. So we, we've always had a, a deep connection to people on the land. And how we first got involved is really probably a family connection of mine. My brother owns one of the largest live export yards. They're called registered premises um, in the Northern Territory. It's just south of Darwin, his yards. Uh, so obviously once the program, the, a bloody business, a Four Corners program on the 30th of May 2011 aired, um, you know, I was, I was having regular conversations with him and I remember at the time, a, a couple of days after that program, he said the word we're hearing is there's going to be a ban on the industry and I remember saying to him at the time, don't be bloody crazy, as if um, a government would hobble mm. an industry like that and, you know, little, what, what did I know, obviously, you know, we all know now. Um, Minister Ludwig, who was then um, Ag Minister, uh, made the decision to um, ban the export of cattle to Indonesia, uh, which obviously had a ripple effect of damaging essentially the entire northern Australian pastoral industry. So once that decision was made, I was probably a little bit of a newborn and a bit of a babe in the woods when it came to animal activists. I, you know, I had really had no experience or um, you know, involvement or understanding of how they worked. And I was just staggered that one program of one hour could have such an effect on the government of the day that they would cripple um, a, an industry. So that was probably my first thing is I, with the support of the firm, I set about doing a huge amount of research in the background, which I won't bore you with, but it was just for me to get an understanding of what these people are about and what drives them. And, you know, that's mm. not... That's, I could spend hours talking about that, and that obviously frightened the hell out of me. But once I did that and understood where they were from, um, I then started doing a lot of FOI searches with um, the department, um, asking for, you know, how did was this decision made? And I, as you would appreciate, FOIs take a couple of months. We then received, you know, um, less than 100 documents. It was nowhere near what I think we were entitled to. But we started to piece together what had happened in the background from the decision-making process of the minister, and it was at that time we were able to decipher that what he had done um, was was inappropriate on a number of levels, and that's where we, the, the process of formulating um, some sort of cause of action started. So it was probably about a year later, middle mm. of you know 
April, May, that we started getting all the documents together and realising there was something here that we could push forward and try and get some sort of result. Well, I'm not surprised maybe there was only 100 documents or so because by the my reading of the court case, the minister didn't actually do much investigation or consideration before the decisions. We'll come to that. Yes. But I, I was very interesting that I believe yesterday when the decision was made was precisely nine years from the date, I think, of the first control order. That was the one that... Uh, that banned live exports, but for I think twelve abattoirs, twelve registered sort of accredited abattoirs in Indonesia, is yes. that that was nine years to the day? Correct, yeah. absolutely. So correct. was that was that was that just coincidence or did the? Uh, look, yeah. I, I would like to think it's coincidence. Um, yeah. in, in fairness to the judge, uh, Justice Rares, he he took eighteen months to make his decision, and I make no criticism of that. I'm very cautious about making no criticism of that. Yeah. What I will note is the federal court is the court where a lot of immigration cases are heard and all of the, uh, the federal court judges, are their docket is overwhelmed with immigration cases, hence um, why decisions like this get um, take some time to see the light of day because they have so much on their plate. Well, I was thinking, um, and then, and then uh, the, uh, the, the nine-year anniversary of the, the, the Big Bang order, though, there was the second control order, which we'll come to, which was the real issue here in this case, which was the one completely banning the trade uh, to Indonesia. That occurred on at 9.30pm on the 7th of June 2011, so we'll, we'll, that'll take over nine years and a few days' time. What, um, uh, where were you, Trent, when that happened? Can you remember that? I, I can distinctly okay, remember, well, but okay. where were you? It's like the moon landing for some of us. Uh, well, this sounds very loyalish, but I was actually on my long... I was just about... I was, well, I was probably somewhere over the... Um, uh, the Pacific Ocean, I was actually on long <laughs> service leave and I was flying to the US for six weeks, uh, sorry, three weeks holiday. And um, I, that conversation, as I said earlier, I had with my brother, that was before I'd left. And by the time I'd landed, <clears throat> the ban had come in. So mm. um, I was, yeah, unfortunately in the US when I found out. Yeah, I just think I remember I was, I was working for, for Barnaby Joyce at the time as a shadow minister, obviously not in government. And uh, uh, I remember getting some texts overnight, which I woke up to the following morning from people saying this had happened. There was a ship in Port Hedland, um, which you know is described as the Falconia, that was uh, that was stranded at the time, an elder's ship. And uh, and I, I, as I often do, as I often did, working for Barnaby Joyce, I turn on the radio in the morning, and who should I hear on the radio but Barnaby Joyce? So I wasn't aware that he was doing a media on it, and he just went off straight away, straight into it. And I distinctly remember him saying that this is. This is this decision is the diplomatic equivalent of tying a note to a brick and throwing it through your neighbour's window. <laughs> and after reading this judgment in 153 pages, he pretty much summed it up on day one. That's uh, pretty much what happened. There wasn't a lot of consultation with anybody, let alone uh, the, the nearest country to our borders. Well, and that, look, like, and that that and obviously we will we will get into that. But that is one of the remarkable things here. Is like. This and this shows the power of these sort of groups. You are well aware of them, people mm. uh, up in the resources sector, um, activists. You know they uh, build this this momentum um, where some politicians uh, believe that there's a lot more people sitting behind them, and they, there's a, there's an absolute desire and urgency to act. Like I still look at this guy. What was the urgency? And I appreciate the urgency was that boat at that particular wharf about to leave. But that boat could have left and they could have had another week discussing this or another two weeks. There was there was no need to come out with that knee-jerk ban. Just, and that's what the, the judges determined. 
Well, we will get into that because that's the very, I mean, I think the detail is important here because someone from outside, I think, could easily say, well, the decision might be a little bit harsh because, you know, don't governments have the right to, to govern and to make decisions and whether you agree or disagree with the decision, you know, is it right for courts to sort of review this? But this, I think it's important to get the particulars of this case out uh, yes. um, uh, to explain that. And and I believe what the justice done here is apply the law, which seems to have been. And I, as a lawyer, I'd just like you to try and explain what is, what's this misfeasance, misfeasance of public office? This is the particular grounds that, that uh, the decision's been made upon. But you try and explain that, I suppose, to some of our lay listeners. What does that mean? Well, look, you know, what I'll say at the outset is it's clearly something um, that a lawyer has come up with when you hear the word misfeasance. <laughs> it's, um, it's just a, a ridiculous word. But effectively, um, it, what it is means, it means is that a public officer, a government, um, someone, who, an elected official has misused or abused their office in an intentional way um, or, or acted in excess of their power in a, in this case, uh, a recklessly mm. indifferent way to the damage it will cause. Well, the way I sort of try to explain it to people is that if you look at a stock standard minister, like the standard minister, and provided with all the information to hand, and no, no minister could have come to that particular decision with all of that information. It's it's sort of so egregious, so out of bounds that it you know it's it amounts to this misfeasance. And the thing you need to be clear, I, I should be very clear on this is a very rare um, area. Um, this would be there would only be a couple of cases that have been determined in this country on this basis. Like it'd be less less than. Five. So the bar to achieve a successful mm. outcome in this misfeasance space is extraordinarily high. Yeah, and, that, and, and going to the question I had before, the Justice Rares, is it? Is that how you pronounce his yes. name? Rares? Justice yes. Rares. And a number of times the decision does make the point that, that you know, governments are entitled to make decisions. And in fact, they're entitled to make decisions for political reasons. We're in a representative democracy. He says at some point in the decision that they have to respond to the, the views and wishes of the electorate. That's, that's the democratic will. Um, but it is still important that they don't exceed the power that's provided to them. The ministers don't exceed the power provided to the parliament and act in a, in, a, in a reasonable way. I mean, what were the grounds here, if you could just establish it a little bit, the specific case here, and, and I'll probably try and step it through yes. a bit, um, yes. as we just sort of described, the, yes. the, the, the bloody business was the 30th of May. Is that right? Is that what you said? 30th of May. That's, that that's quite correct. Um, they made a, yep, sorry. Then what happened after that? They well, they aired the program and then, um, so that the relevant dates really is 30th of May through to the 7th of June. So you're talking mm. about a week. Yeah. Um, and over the course of that week, and I will go chronologically, there was clearly many meetings, many briefings, many pieces of advice handed to the minister, but um, which I won't traverse because the judgment goes on for about 80 pages just dealing with the background. So it is fair to say the minister had multiple meetings with departmental um uh, heads and receive, uh, was in receipt of advice not only from the department but from an external law firm um, relating to multiple questions that he was posing. On the 2nd of June, as you earlier pointed out, there was what's referred to as the interim order or the first order was made, uh, which effectively um, stopped, you know, um, the processing of cattle in, in a number of um, uh, Indonesian abattoirs. Um, as you I appreciate we're talking many years ago now, but the program um, that was aired, a bloody business, showed these abattoirs are very small compared 
to Australian abattoirs. So there was, you know, many, many abattoirs in, in Indonesia that at that stage was accepting Australian cattle. Um, but, you know, it made clear that a number of abattoirs were uh, effectively fit for purpose. And they keep referring to this acronym OIE, mm. which is the World Organization for Animal Health. And they set standards for, you know, um, how animals are to be treated in these sort of um, abattoir situations. And, and a number of these abattoirs, and this will become important as I step through this, a number of the abattoirs in Indonesia were absolutely at or above OIE standards. And in some cases, they were no different to what you would find here in Australia. There was at least four or five abattoirs that fitted into that category. And there's probably about 20, on the evidence, there was about 25 other abattoirs that within two weeks could have been brought up to the relevant OIE standard and were subsequently, did that did happen as a result of, you know, what we're... And, and just to stop you there, it's pretty clear yes. from the evidence too, or at least it didn't seem contested by the Commonwealth, that the minister knew that. He, he knew that oh, yes. there were there were so-called closed supply chains in Indonesia yes. already, although that wasn't the case across the whole supply chain. No one made that case. But he'd had conversations, I think, in April with Troy Setter in evidence to the court. Yes, yes. Uh, Troy was, I think, heading up well, one of the uh, export companies at the time. Austrex, well, was it? Was he Austrex? He's AAK. AAK. Yes. Okay, but he was doing live export for AAK. Yes. Um, he's, he's now with CPC. Uh, good man, Troy. Troy, uh, Troy had a conversation with him about the fact that they had a closed supply chain. Elders had a cl closed supply chain. And some of the Indonesian-based uh, operators could also argue they had closed supply chains. And the minister knew this. Yes. Uh, and as I say, it wasn't contested, um, but no, still then decided to ban the trade to those, to those um, abattoirs, which would clearly be probably as good as any, any abattoir in Australia. Correct. And, and I suppose that the critical point was made was um, this first order or interim order basically had an exception power within it. So, it, and I won't step through that, but it basically um, allowed parties to, you know, understandably come back and make submissions, you know, uh, if they were to able to show circumstances that uh, that a particular abattoir met the standard, well, then it might then be considered for approval. So it, it sort of gave some leeway in there and some and some um, wiggle room if certain facts came to light. Uh, subsequently, so obviously we keep going to all these days, as many meetings, many submissions, many briefings. We get to the cabinet meeting on the sixth of June, and I note there's uh, critically one of the points is made here by. Um, one of the cabinet secretaries sending an email um, to uh, various parties the day before. He said it was it's concerning that, uh, that, that the minister was coming to cabinet without any papers or agency consultation. So you would, you're obviously, you've sat in cabinet. You're one of the rare people in this country who knows what's going on. So here was a briefing before cabinet of a decision that was going to have wide-ranging domestic um, ramifications but also wide-ranging um, diplomatic considerations on the Indonesian front and there was no briefing paper. I just find that extraordinary. Well, um, often I will step in there as, as with that experience. I mean, there sometimes can be urgent decisions which don't have formal yes. papers, if you like, but there doesn't seem to have been much, if at all, any um, uh, papers here to anyone. I, I thought one of the most glaring uh, uh, areas in this regard was uh, when an acting advisor in the office of the Prime Minister, I won't mention her name, but the, on the 4th of June 2011, um, 
she she I'm not sure if this was the same email about not having papers, but she'd also then asked a bunch of questions. Yes, uh, uh, which were pretty relevant, um, and and we we're, were actually it was a well formed email. She was saying, well, what's the expected diplomatic and trade impacts if we were to go ahead with a ban? What's the economic cost in the north? And the only evidence that the Commonwealth seemed to be able to provide in response to the answers that were provided to those questions was that a following email from someone in uh, in in Joe Ludwig's in the Minister for Agriculture's department, which didn't really engage in those questions much at all, and particularly seemed to gloss over the the diplomatic fallout that could occur with Indonesia. It was sort of said, "Oh well, they probably will be upset. And there might be retaliatory reaction, but we don't really know." Um, well, yeah. It's the amazing. Yeah, the Indonesian relationship just seems to have been pushed off to the side. We'll fix that up at a later date, like, which is yeah. astonishing. And and even and this is the last email. There was one on the day before that meeting where one of the uh, Australian government solicitors was saying that we're flying blind here because there was so much information that the parties didn't know because this was moving so quickly. Which is all the more reason to sort of say, let's everyone catch our breaths, you know, and figure out whether we're heading down the right path. But anyway. I mean, I'll just add one more here to this. Uh, yep. It seems clear to me after reading all of this uh, that, that uh, and, and in some fairness to Mr Ludwig, the decision was made on cab at Cabinet on the 6th of June. That's my supposition, right? And I, I think that yes. ju Justice yes. almost gets there now. Yes. Obviously, he doesn't and we can't know for a number of years yet what was discussed in Cabinet on the 6th of June 2011. But there seemed to have been a step change before Cabinet and after Cabinet. Before Cabinet, uh, 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 Mr Ludwig's department sent an email, I think it was on the night or the day of, of the Cabinet meeting, with a number of options that they could progress, uh, one of which was a complete ban. Uh, that was option A. A complete ban everywhere that was, I think with the exception of maybe Egypt where a closed supply chain already occurred, but not just Indonesia, uh, everywhere else basically. And the other options were what we've been discussing, exceptions, uh, a whitelist, if you like, that sort of thing. And the department had indicated they'd be recommending options B or C. They wouldn't proceed with option A at this stage, in their words. And so that was that was their position just before Cabinet met. And then after Cabinet, obviously, they came out with not so much option A, though. They came out with just a ban on Indonesia, uh, yes. um, which was oh, probably the worst of all worlds because it was singling out one country. Uh, not just focusing it on the issue at hand. So I'm pretty sure the decision was made at Cabinet and maybe Joe didn't even support it, who knows. But that's a problem with no papers. It would have been a political discussion. I imagine there may not even have been minute takers in the room. Sometimes they're asked to leave. It was a very political issue. You had Bob Brown um, from the Greens putting a bill forward in, in the Parliament. People forget they've got off scot-free here. I'm going to make this point. You don't have to comment, Trent, but the... Country independence were in, in, in town at this time. It was a hung parliament at the time. Yes, yes, uh, correct. Mr Windsor and Mr Oakeshott. So it was a highly political environment. And I think they just took, you know, let's just try and get this off the agenda by banning the Indonesian trade and didn't really think through a lot of the uh, the ramifications as we've seen come out through this judgment. Well, I, I agree with your analysis there. And I'll add one further thing because I remember talking to a number of senators at the time from the Labor side of the chamber and they were the recipients of, like, in the order of six to 10,000 pieces of campaign mail into their inboxes from the various animal, uh, RSPCA, uh, um, Animals Australia, um, advocating for a ban on the trade. So that was what caucus, and I imagine was getting, you know, filtered through to Cabinet, this is a white-hot issue out in the electorate. Um, and I agree that this moved beyond animal welfare into the political domain very rapidly and following that Cabinet meeting. The decision was made and on the 7th is where we get to the critical second order and critically 
um, and this is probably the criticism the judge makes, um, is that there was no exception made in this particular order. So whilst the minister had received all of that advice, there was a number of abattoirs and supply chains that were closed, i.e., you know, um, you, you could feel comfortable that the cattle were going in and there'd be no leakage of cattle out of them. Um, you know, he disregarded that fact and just proceeded to ban those supply chains as well. And that's when he's referred to the fact that the decision was capricious and unreasonable. And obviously there's a lot more facts that sit behind that, but that's the nub of it. I mean, the other thing here is too, it's not just the actual decision. I think you're right to say that the justice was critical of the decision that was come to. It was also the process as well, seemingly, oh, yes. that, uh, as I said before, maybe I wasn't surprised you didn't me documents through your FOI request because it just didn't seem to be a lot of consideration to this issue. Keep in mind that we all knew in Canberra for, I think I found out a week before, but apparently the government and through this, it looks like they knew a month or two before that this footage was coming. They hadn't seen the footage in the middle. Yes but they knew yes. it was going to be a pretty big deal. And there just didn't seem to be a lot of forethought. Everything seemed to happen, as you said, after that week. That's when all the advice was prepared and very little was seemingly given to the minister himself and no advice. The Commonwealth could not put forward any advice that was given in regards to the specific option chosen, which was just to ban the trade uh, to, to Indonesia. As we said, there was some consideration of a broader ban uh, to all uh, countries, if you like, or at least non-Egyptian countries. Uh, but just Indonesia, that wasn't considered. The only thing that they seemed to be able to put up was that the uh, the secretary of Mr Ludwig's department had a discussion pre-cabinet, which is pretty common. That's what I used to always do, pre-cabinet with him, um, and where they may have discussed some of these issues. But, uh, yeah, it was very unclear from the Commonwealth that they specifically went through the, the, the decision that was ultimately made. Absolutely right. And um, I suppose we, without being cynical, we are used to um, governments, you know, overanalyzing things and taking their time. And, and that's, and, and as you rightly pointed out, sometimes decisions need to be made quickly. But you would hope um, when, particularly in a case like this, we're talking about a significant part of the country, the, the northern part of Australia depends very heavily on this um, particular trade and the cattle industry. And, uh, you know, those considerations just seem to have fallen aside when um, the minister was trying to satisfy the squeakiest of the wheels of the room. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, just um, just going in more into this legal detail, trying not to bore our audience, I suppose, yeah. but I think this is important. It's important to get on the record. We've yes. discussed the misfeasance, and, and as you've said, they're basically uh, that Justice Rare has concluded that... Uh, the minister was recklessly indifferent, effectively, to to the uh, the impact um, of this decision, and didn't consider uh, potentially other options. It, it did also. I, I wanted to draw you out here. There seemed to be a separate question, which I'm. I, I wasn't sure whether this was exactly the question of misfeasance, but there was, it was a question question of whether the decision itself was invalid because it wasn't necessary or proportionate. I think the justice sort of mapped out three different tests here for a regulatory decision that had to be suitable, necessary and proportionate. I think he concluded it was suitable. It suited the, the problem at hand, but he didn't think it was necessary or proportionate. Is that a, did that need to be established before misfeasance or was that a separate kind of discussion well, here? Well, it's one of the stages of considerations as he, as he was getting towards, you know, making the ultimate determination on, Misfeasance. And it really comes down to, you know, you know what were the alternatives available, I suppose. And, and there was, you know, multiple um, options that he, he had effectively, given all the advice that it had in front of him. 
Yeah. Well, it, it did It did lay it out very clearly. I mean, I, I don't know if people want to read through the 153 pages. It's traumatic for a lot. Uh, hopefully it'll bring some closure for, for many. This uh, The decision, is, as you and I know, devastated Northern Australia. And, and even though, I mean, we didn't, I'm not going to go through what happened after this, but just to note that, that, that in a week, the government went from supporting the live cattle trade. There's a lot of evidence here that they actually were on the record at many times supporting the live cattle trade before the, the TV show. Uh, to banning it but for 12 abattoirs in Indonesia, to completely banning it. And then within a month after the, the show, they'd um, reopened it in a limited way as well because well, they realised how quickly that their decision was incorrect. And you've got to be a little bit cautious there because I know that it's, it was a five-week suspension, but the reality is that you know how trade yep. works. It, it, you don't just flick a switch and everything goes back exactly. to normal. It's like, it's like boats, these lockdowns, right? It doesn't just come back straight away. No, and a lot of the boats that you know, were due to be plying the, the, the waters between Australia and Indonesia, well, they just can't. Some of them did sit at anchor, but some of them would have gone and looked for work elsewhere because they've got to minimise um, their losses. So when they went to flip the trade switch back on, well, then they had to go and find these boats again, you know, and um, it wasn't just a five-week suspension. It took, it took another month or two before the trade really got going again. And then you've got to put a look on the back of that the Indonesians were seriously pissed off. So mm. we started to see the um, the ramifications of, you know, um, quotas being put in and all sorts of, let's, let's call them um, the trade barriers, the sort of things that um, are being, you know, masked in the style of they're doing it for the domestic politics. But it's, it's all about wrapping us on the knuckles. It's like you're basically treating us with contempt on the international stage. So we will, you know, hurt you from a trade point of view. So it... It, it, the Northern Territory was hurting for a good two years after this. Um, and, look, some people left the industry as a result because, you know, they just weren't able to roll with the punches over that over that middle critical period of 2011. It, it was right around the country too because it, it had ramifications right. for the entire cattle market. Uh, well, it, it wasn't it, just it, those who exported live. Uh, yeah. um, obviously, they were the most impacted by the decision across Northern Territory, Northwest Australia and North Queensland. But uh, it, what happened, and as this, um, I'm glad the justice, he did seem to get to the bottom here of the, the knock-on effects of the decision because, and I should, we haven't yet, but we should absolutely congratulate the Bretts and the Brett Cattle Company for taking this case and seeing it through. Uh, they were the specific um, uh, uh, harm or detriment that was put forward in this case, but we'll come to the, the class action elements of this in a second. But uh, good on the Bretts and, and also the National Farmers Federation for supporting the case. Um, the, the, as the Justice pointed out, the Bretts had to make a decision, as you said, they, they were going to sell to, to Indonesia uh, because of the uncertainty around the trade. They had to re, readjust and send some of their cattle south to, to Blackhall for fattening. That then pushed more cattle of supply onto southern markets, which lowered the price everywhere, and it was coming out of a big drought as well for wow. many. It was a terrible outcome. It was total devastation across Australian cattle markets. You're right, and the, and the figures bear that out, that the, the cattle price dipped because there was cattle in, all of a sudden pushed onto the domestic market that were meant to be on a boat heading to Indonesia. Yeah, and look, those unfortunately, there's, there's costs here, notwithstanding how this, I welcome the decision and I hope the Commonwealth will accept it and, and work things out. There's some people here who will never be compensated because the loss is too indirect from the original decision. But there were, as I said, yes. there's people all around the country that were hurt from this terrible decision. Um, but at least this provides closure for some and compensation for, for many, hopefully, uh, and a lesson that we should never, never do something like this again. Um, 
I wanted to talk about that now. So what happens next? Um, uh, there's obviously some avenue for which the Commonwealth could appeal here. Yes. Uh, what's the timing of that and, and what are the prospects, do you think, uh, that they will do that? Well, um, they have 28, had 28 days from yesterday when the decision was uh, delivered. Um, look, I'm probably a little bit too close to it. I, I, look, I've read it. As we've already discussed, 18 months is a long time to write a judgment. It is phenomenally well considered and reasoned. Um, the only way you can appeal is if they can, that is the Commonwealth, can determine an error of law. I, I don't see any errors of law. Um, that's not to say that they may not take a punt anyway, but I would be hopeful that, and I appreciate this is taxpayers' money, um, but in circumstances where the aggrieved parties have waited nine years for judgment, I just think a line needs to be drawn in the sand um, on this. I have already seen um, Susan McDonald, uh, one of your colleagues in the Senate, has come out and openly said that you know uh, the government should not appeal. And I've also seen Joel Fitzgibbon today has said something similar. So you've got people on both sides of the House um, pushing for... Um, this to be finalised, and and I'm hopeful that that's the way the Australian government solicitor in the Commonwealth will go. Well, we'll wait and see, and uh, I've expressed that view to the the minister too. But I do realise he's got to weigh all these uh, these things up and and get the proper advice. And and you know, just like Joe, he's a minister, so he's got to make a he should make a, a considered decision uh, on these uh, on these matters. It is, a, it is a pretty important decision, obviously, uh, for the future. Um, uh, I want to ask you about that, but before I do, I meant to ask too, how, how are the damages going to be worked out? Let's say that either the decision stands or the Commonwealth doesn't appeal. What happens now? What, 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 who's going to, who's going to uh, well, potentially get compensation? How are they going to work that out? Well, there's a class, oh, sorry, so there's, um, there's a class of people sitting in the background behind the Bretts, um, and there's about 300 people. I understand the class is still open. Um, yes, that's so my understanding too. I spoke to some people yes. yesterday that people. So that I don't have the details, so, but people can, if they are really, really interested, get onto my office, and I'm sure we'll be able to track them down how to join. Yes. So my understanding is there's over 15 categories of um, supply chain participants. They have effectively. Um, so, for argument's sake, you've got producers, you've got truck, trucking companies, that everyone in the supply chain will fit into a category and then there will be uh, a mechanism determined as to how payment will be made by reference to each of those. There'll be some sort of calculation worked up with forensic accountants um, for each category. So then, for argument, if we just focus on trucking companies, they would put in submissions and I would imagine you would have to submit your own accounts for the relevant periods 2010 and maybe earlier years and 2011 to show what happened before and what happened after. And then, you know, this mechanism will, you know, spit out a figure for you. So there's a bit of work that still needs to be done in that area and I would suggest it's even if no appeal, it's going to be uh, unlikely people are going to see money before a year. Um, you know, I would hope mm. there's, there's the bigger companies, AAK, CPC and others, will have already got all that stuff to hand and as soon as they come up with this mechanism, they'll be a, a knocking on the door. So some of the bigger companies will be able to get in very quickly, but some of the smaller producers, we're talking about nine years ago, you know, they're going to have to, yeah. you know, it's, it's going to take time. And particularly for those others in the supply chain, I noticed the Justice had quite a discussion about working out potentially um, the, the costs in the case of the Bretts with uh, missed cattle sales, uh, transport costs, adjustment, et cetera, 
Um, but even then, he couldn't come to specific conclusions. As, um, he needed the parties to go away and negotiate uh, yes. on that. Uh, and and you know, when you start talking, I suppose, further down the chain in terms of presumably mustering companies, trucking companies, it, it's going to be it's a complex matter working out exactly what the the, the costs were. Uh, but yes. at least there's, there's some hope for those involved and, and good yeah. that it does spread down that far. And, look, I suppose in, one thing that's worked in the favour of the Commonwealth is that um, early on the figures were looking very large because the, the diminution in property values was very considerable. I remember the year after mm. um, the ban, AACO had written down their properties by, to the tune of $60 million, which was largely off the back of, um, you know, the, the, the scare that this has put through um, investors in, you know, buying into anything relating to live export. But over the passage of time since 2011, property values have risen to the extent that I, I, I would doubt you're going to be able to claim for property loss. So that's... Well, property loss is almost future loss, isn't it? And, and, yeah. Because and yeah. it's capitalising in those potential future losses. And, yeah, you'd think that's unlikely now because... I would argue the coalition government's come in. We've been very strong defenders of the industry, helped rebuild the relationship with Indonesia. It seems to have a pretty strong future. And look, if anything, if anything positive came out of this too, I think even at the time, even independent of this decision, it it, it caused such pain for the Labor Party that, that it's hard to see them doing something exactly like this again uh, um, in regards to the live cattle industry. Though they've got plenty of other industries they can stuff up, but uh, because it just it's just such a stark example of what they did wrong. Um, but so that's positive. But yeah, so you've got those costs that there was actually incurred during these years of uncertainty. Um, but hopefully the future looks pretty bright for the industry, which is a good thing. And as you say, potentially lowers the, the compensation uh, claim from the Commonwealth. Well, absolutely. And, and if you just think about it, I, I look at obviously even a year down the track, this is potential money that's going to flow through the Northern Territory and, and actually be a great thing in terms of, you know, capital investment and yeah. other things that people can do on their properties. It's their money, let's be honest. They are entitled. This is damage that their business have suffered. It's not a windfall. Um, but, you know, I'm sure many of them have moved on to the stage where, you know, it's um, it, it's not, um, they're not absolutely screaming Well, well the good thing is that, that they, they, they'll obviously, some will, some will seek to invest this this money in yes. some way, shape or form, as good businesses do. And with the, the fact that we put the live trade and the cattle industry more generally on a solid footing, the cattle industry is a good place to invest it, hopefully, and, and, and have some of that, uh, that, 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 that extra capital um, spread through and, and build resources in northern Australia. Couldn't agree more. Because there's so much to do. I mean, we'll, we'll, we might get you on to talk about this another time because I know you know a lot about this, but there's so much to do across these properties in the north to increase you know, breeding rates, uh, uh, pasture management, et cetera. Uh, um, one of the reasons the trade exists is because that infrastructure is quite limited in northern Australia, partly because the markets are limited and the distances are so great and the costs are great. Uh, so, so the live trade makes a lot of sense. But, you know, we would hope over time to intensify production, uh, uh, potentially have more box beef and those sort of things, but that takes capital and investment. It doesn't happen overnight. Well, you are acutely aware of the untapped potential of the North and, um, and the, the significant benefits that could be derived from further investment, not only in the cattle industry, but many other industries mm. in, across the North. Um, and obviously, I'm a big supporter of, of uh, you know, anything that um, will increase uh, 
productivity in that region. Before I let you go, Trent, one thing I wanted to ask is the general fallout from this. Uh, uh, you mentioned a couple of times the the, uh, the the fact that this decision was made in a political environment response to to, a, to in this case, a, I think going that far back, it was largely an email campaign still. It wasn't really too much yes. on Twitter. And a lot of people weren't even on Twitter back then, but I remember. And I remember the emails coming in, the calls coming in. I'll just stop there and make one anecdote that, that it was actually coming a bit from both sides because you had the animal activists uh, up in arms. But you also had a fair number of people from the conservative side of politics upset about the trade with, with, with another country, and, and that they, you know, that it became this um, became very clear that people cared about Australian cattle. You know, they were Australian cattle as if they had passports and citizenship, and we must protect our Australian cattle. Um, uh, um, the, 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 the concern from those people about Indonesian cattle was great, and so it was coming from both sides. But what the Labor Party didn't really think about was what the ramifications were going to be. As soon as it became that musterers were losing their job, jobs, uh, stockmen were losing their jobs, families being kicked off their properties, the whole thing changed. The whole thing shifted and the politics came out from under them. Uh, what do you think for the future here? Will this potentially be a check on some of those, uh, the Americans would call them astroturf campaigns, these fake campaigns which purport to be representative of lots of people but really don't have much behind them? I would, look, I would love to think so, um, Matt. Look, obviously, when I focus on activists, it's mainly in the animal um, rights realm. You've had experience more with... Yeah, um, lots. <laughs> yeah, across the spectrum, let's yeah, just say. Yeah. Um, and the, the one thing I will give them credit, begrudging credit, is that they are incredibly good at manipulating the media cycle. And I'm, and I'm loath to get on here and kick journalists. So, you know, I'm not, but... One thing that they are acutely aware of is that a lot of the press, um, a lot of the, uh, the, the media organisations are under-resourced, it's only getting worse, and if they send in press releases, they just get run without any scrutiny. And, and that's the one thing that you know, I find particularly galling, is that you won't, I even look at, I won't mention their name, the press release that was issued by one of these groups yesterday, you know, anyone with a modicum of, you know, um, sort of curiosity could look at that and go, well, that's just wrong, you know, but that's the sort of thing that they're used to. And um, I, I'm hopeful that people, you know, you only look at that lemon tree feedlot in Melbourne last year where it was raided mm. by, um, by activists and, and um, that Aussie Farms website. Like, that's about the first time we've seen missteps from these groups in this country and people, common everyday Australians, are actually seeing what some farmers are having to put up with. And um, I hope I hope people are slowly waking up that they're not all lily white. These activists. Don't forget the Bob Brown rally too. We we always love mentioning <laughs> that on this uh, this program. Um, very very effective. I mean, I think people are. It's become there's these sort of things have a shelf life, and so the tactics were useful at first, but people become open to them and wise to them after a while. I do think the one good thing about this is it provides. Governments with a uh, with some degree of, of of an opportunity to take a breath. Um, in fairness to governments that are subject to these kind of campaigns, there is incredible pressure. That's what clearly happened here, uh, uh, and and under that pressure, poor decisions can be made, which is also clearly what happened here. Uh, um, but with a decision like this, if Joe had this decision, if if the government then had this decision beforehand, they could have said, "Hey, look, we'd love to help you out, but you know." Um, remember last time we did this, it cost the Commonwealth government, you know, X hundred million dollars. Uh, so just having that time to take a breath and and uh, stare down uh, these campaigns could be useful. Maybe I'm hoping against hope, 
but uh, I do think it's uh, it's a very, very important decision. It's been great having you on today here, Trent, to talk about it. Anything else we've missed, mate, that you'd like to add? Well, no, I, other than very quickly, you, you mentioned well, huge um, congratulations to the Brack Cattle yep. Company. Massive thanks to the Australian uh, uh, National Farmers Federation Fighting Fund yep. and also um, the person who the guiding hand of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association, Tracy Hayes, did a phenomenal job and should be commended um, from every corner. You know, she has lived and breathed this thing for the last eight or nine years. With Luke Bowen was helping in the early days, but then Tracy picked up the cudgel, so my hat's off for all of those people. That's a great place to finish, and uh, I add my congratulations to all those. I spoke to Tracy yesterday, and, yeah, it's a, it's a great testament for the hard work she put in. In fact, I think the Northern Ter- Territory Cattlemen's Association just did such a great job. Uh, they helped turn around the politics from day one, um, and uh, that made such a difference to the politics of this at that time and helped overturn that initial ban, and, and then they've seen it through. So, so well done, Tracy. Well done, Luke. Well done to everybody uh, involved. Thank you very much, Trent. You have a good, good evening, and uh, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can do that on all your favourite podcast apps, or you can go to weatherboardandiron.com and, uh, and sign up. Thank you very much, and uh, all the best. <laughs>